up. So you should be feeling cozy. Glad you're inside and ready for a sermon. I won't tell you how long I think it'll be. It'll be longer than 20 minutes, so I can guarantee you that. <laughs> um, if you would, uh, you can turn in your worship folder um, to our sacred reading, which comes from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. And I'll just be reading verses 12 through 20, even though I had printed verse, a couple verses from chapter 7. Hear God's word to us. Paul the Apostle writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power, do, not, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. Oh, Father, as we hear these words, perhaps um, there are very few... (laughs) Countercultural passages of Scripture that we can hear and read than this one. It's hard for us to understand all of what Paul is saying, and it is deeply uh, goes against the grain for a lot of the ways we think about the world. So we do pray your light and illumination this morning to hear your your word, to understand how it applies and affects all of us wherever whatever station we find ourselves in in life. And help us to know, God, that you are a God that is always moving towards sinners, especially sexual sinners, not away. And so, oh Lord, may you move towards us in redeeming and restoring love. In the name of Jesus, amen. A recurring conversation that I've had throughout the years, for the past 20 years plus, has been something like this, and there is, um, yes, I understand what the Bible says. (laughs) that the Bible says you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. But why? Why? I mean, I understand what it says, but why? What are the reasoning? What is the reason? It just doesn't make sense. Now, I've had this conversation around sort of premarital sex. I've had it around divorce. I've had it around same-sex marriage, gender complementarity. And it's looked, this basic question really is, well, okay, the Bible says this, it commands this, but, but what's the reasoning? What's the logic of it? Because at the end of the day, and, and here's, here's the question behind the question, and it's really, I think, a question all of us have, is this sense of how do we make sense of what the Bible says about sexuality when it doesn't seem logical, it doesn't seem reasonable, it doesn't match up with our experience of how the world works, 
I mean, if two people are in love and they're committed, why shouldn't they be able to um, sleep together? That seems like a natural thing. It doesn't seem to be an odd thing. Now, the reality is, is that all moral decisions we make, especially moral decisions related to our body and sexuality, are always made against the backdrop of a larger story. And the reason why we have such a hard time understanding the biblical understanding of sexuality um, has to do with we don't really understand the story very well anymore, nor do we as a community, as a people, live it out very well. Stories give plausibility to moral decisions and practices. Uh, The philosopher Alistair McIntyre, in his book After Virtue, states, and I've, I've shared this before, he says, I can, only find, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what stories do I find myself apart? In other words, I, I can only answer this question of what am I supposed to do morally if I understand what, am, what story am I belonging to? What story am I living out and am I moving towards? And the reality is, is that the biblical sexuality story is not plausible anymore, in part because our culture doesn't know it and we don't live it. You know, I've talked a lot about, um, you know, this idea of the sexual revolution. And when we hear that word, the sexual revolution, um, there really was, there is something called the sexual revolution that really begins in, it, in the 1960s, early 1960s America, which was nothing less than a cosmological revolution. See, the sexual revolution is really a cosmological revolution. And by the word cosmology... What I mean is a cosmology is an overarching story. It is a big picture story that helps us understand how everything relates to one one thing. It's how how the stars and the moon interact. A cosmology is an overarching story of how everything is interrelated. And, you know, in the middle part of the 20th century, and its antecedents go much further back in history, there began to be this fundamental transformations in how we thought about pretty much everything related to sexuality. The body... Freedom, spirituality, gender, marriage, divorce, birth control, what it means to fall in love, what it means to belong to community, our understandings of the public and the private, parenting, the ideal family, all these things. I mean, there, you have this, this, this complete transformation and revolution. Nicholas uh, Copernicus, you may have heard, we talk about a Copernican revolution And his contribution in the 16th century was to say, you know what? The universe doesn't orbit around the earth. It actually orbits around the sun. We call it a Copernican revolution. And it was actually very hard for people to wrap their heads around this because their whole understanding of the universe and the cosmos was that the earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around it. And so that affected so many things in terms of practices and science. And when people actually recognize it, no, he's right, it revolutionized science and cosmology. And in the same way, I think something has happened um, within the past 50 years in Western societies. And so the question I've been asking since this series began, and it's really, I want to pose it again, is what does it mean to have sex after the revolution? What does it mean to have sex after the revolution? And, and really, but the revolution I have in mind this morning, and really what we've, I've had in mind the whole time, isn't the revolution of the 1960s in America, but it's another revolution. It's the revolution of the 60s in Corinth. <laughs> because... In reality, actually, as you read this text, it sounds strange to us. And especially if you don't have a Christian background and you're hearing this, this is like a shocking kind of thing. And there's a lot of what Paul says in here, even as Christians, we have a hard time wrapping our minds around. 
But what's important for us to understand is that actually what Paul represents and what Jesus represents in the first century as it goes out into this Greek world was a completely revolutionary understanding of sexuality. Completely countercultural. And in fact, actually, it's our sexuality today that we call the new sexuality or the revolution. It actually looks more like the traditional sexuality of the first century. See, traditional sexuality of the first century amongst Greeks and Romans was actually pretty much what our new sexual revolution looks like today. Very promiscuous. And actually, it's Paul who brings the revolution. And it's quite incredible how Christianity reorders and revolutionizes the understanding of of sexuality. And that's what I want us to, to kind of wrestle with this morning. Because Paul's approach to sexuality, you have to see, He's simply not saying, well, this is what the Bible says, and you just got to trust what the Bible says and do it. He actually makes a cosmological argument. It's pretty incredible. He makes a cosmological argument on the basis of his understanding of the biblical understanding of the body. And here's the argument. Let me just give you the story in a nutshell, and then I'll try to unpack it with the time we have. This is Paul's central argument, and this is his story. He says, your body was created by God, and it was redeemed by by God. Your body is a crossroads, a pivot point that sits at the very center of the cosmos that affects your relationship with yourself, your relationship with community, and your relationship with God. Your body is a crossroad. It's like like Brady, Farwell, and Cambridge. It's like this intersection. And there's all this traffic, spiritual, communal, self-traffic that goes by it. And porneia, or sexual immorality, and I'll define that a little bit later for you, sexual immorality is a cosmic monstrosity. It, 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 it just creates complete and utter chaos and confusion. It undermines the goodness and the beauty and the order and the harmony that God has set in place. And so that, that's Paul's basic argument. That's what he's getting at here. And so what I want to wrestle with you this morning is, is this idea of, of the a cosmic sexuality, right? That porneia, sexual immorality, degrades the self, it degrades community, and it degrades our spirituality. Look at, um, look at verse 18. In the, in the, Paul says, Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In other words, what you do with your body sexually impacts your sense of self for either health or harm. So sexual immorality harms the self. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against the body. Now, immediately you're thinking, okay, well, well, isn't alcoholism or drug addiction or suicide or gluttony a sin against the body, right? I mean, what does Paul exactly mean here when he says sin against the body? And, and actually, he has a fairly nuanced understanding here. I think what he's saying is this, is that there, there's something about sexual sin that, that is distinct from other sins. He's not saying that other sins don't impact our bodies. But there's something about sexual sin that impacts our sense of self in the deepest way. That is a kind of undoing of the self. That's really what he's saying, is that sexual sin isn't, I mean, you can recover from gluttony or, or uh, I mean, alcoholism is perhaps, an, you know, something that stays with you, but, but there's a way that when you sin against your body sexually, that it, it does something to you, it, it, it leaves a trace that, that, that simply just doesn't go away. It is an undoing of yourself. And so, 
you know, to, you can't just break God's command. We, we never, and this is true of all of God's commands, but you don't simply break God's commands. Like, <laughs> you, you break yourself. That's what Paul's saying. You're not just breaking a command of God, you're breaking yourself. And so every understanding of sexuality, every understanding of what you do with your body sexually assumes an understanding of the body. And that's part of the core of Paul's understanding and his argument here. And it's important for us, I think, to dive into that. So hold on tight. This first point is the longest point, so don't get nervous. <laughs> if it's 20 minutes, I'm still on the first point. Because in many ways, this is the hardest thing for us to get, is to get a sense of what, what Paul and really what the biblical tradition means by the body. So how do these Corinthians understand the body? And, and just to back up for a minute, the Corinth was... Um, you might think of the city of Corinth as like an ancient version of Las Vegas. Las Vegas is like a city that just kind of came up in the middle of the desert. Corinth was completely leveled by the Romans, and it was rebuilt. So it was a new city, and it had a temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and sex, that was on the hill that overlooked the city. And it was an oversexed city, to say the least. It was a very ambitious and, you know... um, uh, sexualized city. And so Paul is writing to this. But, but with that said, it's not as if what Paul is talking about here would have been unusual, broadly speaking, within various uh, Greek contexts throughout the ancient world. And so the Corinthians have this understanding of the body that is, is very uh, influenced by uh, Greek religion and philosophy, but it was basically that the body is like a shell to be left behind when you die. You know, that, that when you are... You're, you know, you'll, someday you'll be liberated from your body. Your soul will go to another place, and your body won't come with you. The body is unimportant. I mean, they had a very low view of the body. And there's really two responses, and Paul's actually dealing with two different, um, two different views of sexuality in, in this uh, congregation. And I, I want to do the... I, I printed verses uh, 7, uh, chapter 7, verses 1, because one of the views at Corinth was actually the view of sexuality, that sexuality is dirty, right? It is impure and it is unholy. And that the spiritual person shouldn't do it, right? And this is why Paul says um, in verse 1, he's quoting a slogan here of the Corinthians, it is good for a man not to have sex with sexual relations. What he's doing is he's quoting this and then he's saying, no, not exactly. So there was this one view that the spiritual person actually would just outgrow their need for sex. But there was another view, and that, the other view is the one that's probably the one that's more common today. I mean, it is true that there are still religious people out there that see sex as inherently bad. I have not met any of them of late. It's been a long time. Even in more traditionally conservative parts of, of America, I, I have a hard time discerning where people see sex as bad. Quite the opposite. It's really what the second position on sex that the Corinthians have, which is sex is like an appetite. Again, there's another slogan here um, that Paul sums up. He says, all things are lawful for for me. In other words, this is what the Corinthians were saying. It's sort of like when people say, you know, you need to let go and let God. Um, It's like a slogan. And most slogans we don't like, right? I mean, they're kind of trite. But but so Paul is quoting this, and and then he's turning it upside down in his head. So there were people who were arguing, like, all things are lawful for me. I'm a Christian. I've been set free. God has redeemed me. What, you know, I'm free to do as I like. And it was a relationship and an understanding towards sex is basically like an appetite. So the way we think about eating, right, it's an appetite, right? I can eat at Jimmy John's or I can eat at, you know, um, 
um, Bacchus, you know, right? It is food, right? It doesn't matter. And that's kind of how the Corinthians approached it, right? It's a need and it's an appetite like sleep, like thirst, and one simply has to, to meet that need. And of course, I think this is probably, I mean, depending where you go in our culture, this is kind of how we think about sexuality outside of the church, even sometimes inside the church. It's like, it's a need, I have to be satisfied. So we have pornography on hookup culture, and that kind of deals with that, right? But Paul's view of sex is incredibly high. You have to see that. That's the assumption that runs throughout this set. His view of cracks is incredibly high and exalted because the body matters. Like, what you do with your body matters. Let me just say a couple words about this word I've been using, porneia. So that word that's translated sexual immorality in the Greek is the word porneia. And of course, that's where we get our word pornography. And there's a really interesting history with this word, and I won't go into all the etymology for you. But Paul basically takes this word porneia which had different meanings in the Greek context and also in the Jewish context, and he just, it just expands it. Because really there was no language to kind of describe the new sexuality. And porneia really doesn't just refer to um, fornication or adultery. It refers to actually all forms of sexual, unlawful sexual um, activity outside of marriage. In the ancient world, of course, Paul is talking about prostitutes. And I think we, we read this section and we're like, well, I don't have a problem with prostitution. What you have to understand in the ancient world is that in the ancient world, nobody didn't marry, right? The fornication or just kind of moving in with your girlfriend wasn't an option. Being single long-term wasn't an option unless you were a slave. And so the way that men in particular dealt with sexual desire, needs, and appetites is they would go to prostitutes. And so there was really no shame and no moral condemnation around prostitution in the ancient world. The way we think about prostitution today is actually much different. It was kind of a morally neutral category. The only thing you couldn't do as a Greek male is sleep with another man's wife. Because if you were to do that, that was the only meaning of porneia. If you did that, you would bring dishonor to that man and his family. But pretty much everything else was fair game. And Paul just, he, and he expands this and says, no, what happens in the body matters. Why? The body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord is meant for the body. And Paul, he, he goes and he says, By his power, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, and he will raise us also. See, throughout this letter, Paul is saying, listen, you cannot, your body is a primary object of God's redemptive activity. It's a resurrection of the body. It's not the resurrection of the soul or of the spirit. That the body is an object of God's redeeming activity in the world. What you do with your body matters. And so, we have to think about what we do sexually with our body because your body is the real you. Six months ago, I preached a sermon called The Meaning of the Body where we looked at this idea of God creating Adam from the dust and making him a body and what that meant. And one of the th- things that we talked about there is this, is that your body is the real you. It's not as if you, your, your real you is some kind of internal thing, your soul or spirit that's disconnected from your body. No, your body is the real you. Yes, you have a soul and a spirit. And yet, there is no you without a body. You can't escape the givenness of your body without losing yourself. And that's what Paul is saying. So it matters what we do with our bodies because the fear, spiritual and the physical are completely interconnected. So, the sex act is something that doesn't merely engage some purely sort of physiological aspect of us. 
It actually engages the complete totality of our embodied personhood. It engages us with our souls, with all that we have. Uniquely, sexuality engages all of us with another person in the world. So, that puts us in a better position to understand what Paul says when he says it's absolutely destructive for you to engage in porneia. And here's what he says in verse 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Sex, in other words, isn't simply a physical act. There's a kind of spiritual, metaphysical union that takes place. It's a reference back to marriage, right? I mean, Paul is quoting Genesis 2 here, when God originally gives marriage. And so, you ha- to understand sexuality and, and physical sexuality, you have to understand what its original purpose was. Whole life union. That was the purpose of sex. Whole life union with another. God's original design for sex was not only a symbolizing of that union, but an actualizing of it. There's a sacramental character to it. it it's it, like when we come to this table, I talk about it's a sign and a seal. It's, it, it actually symbolizes a reality, but it actually does something too. And that's the reality of sexuality, that there's a, there's a, there's a oneness, a deep soul union and personal transformation that takes place that brings two people together. It's emotional. It's financial. It's moral. It's spiritual. It's physical. That's what one flesh means, right? In Genesis 2. And so sex can never simply be for self-gratification or self-expression. It's for radical self-donation. It's for radical self-donation. Not self-expression, not not, uh, gratification. When um, we think about intimacy in the Bible, And again, this is completely upside down from the way we think about it in our culture. The more physically close you become with another person, the more you touch them, right? The more physically intimate you become with them, actually the closer you draw to that person's heart and soul. Sexual expression is a way of giving ourselves the totality of ourselves to another person, which is why, incidentally, it's the final stage of union, right? That's why sexuality is left for the very end of the union. When all whole life union has been put in place and the covenant has been committed to, then you have this consummation, which then begins to actualize the reality. And this is why sex has always been reserved for lifelong covenantal commitment in the Scriptures. Because it's a creative and dangerous force. That's the thing you have to realize. Sex is a power. And it's a creative and dangerous force, and there's no place safe for it outside of the covenantal commitments of marriage. Do you realize what you're doing? Do you, friends, do you realize what you're doing when you give yourself sexually to another person? You are giving them access to the, to the control center of your life. You're giving them access to sort of the command central. You think about command central in military terms. What you're doing is you're, you're giving a person access to that part of yourself where you can be reprogrammed. <laughs> your identity, your sense of yourself, they can touch you there. And so why would you ever give keys and access to somebody to do that that doesn't actually, at the end of the day, committed to be there for you, to love you, and to reciprocate with the same kind of self-giving. This is why Paul, for, for Paul, it's a monstrosity. Sexual acts are meant for total and radical self-giving. 
I'll paraphrase Tim Keller on this. He says, sex is a way of so giving yourself to another that it results in personal transformation and completion. Sex is a way of so giving yourself to another that it results in personal transformation and self-completion. You should never have physical oneness without whole life oneness. You should never have physical oneness without whole life oneness. You should never become physically naked with another person without also becoming emotionally and financially and life naked before them. It's monstrous to do otherwise. (laughs) Because what you do is you initiate something metaphysically in your very body which the reality behind it does not support. And it's destructive and it's degrading. There's a couple things here, I think, just to point out, of what happens when, in, in, in this, of por- when, we, when we engage in pornea, <laughs> and there's a lot of different, and I would include pornography in this as well. Friends, Keller puts it this way, I like what he says, is that you damage your commitment apparatus. <laughs> you damage your commitment apparatus. See, the more you jump in and out of sexual relationships through your life, the more your ability to actually commit yourself to one person and to enter into covenantal faithful relationships is damaged, the harder it actually becomes to commit and to stay faithful. But there's a second point, too, which is that the more... Your sexual is like tape. It's like an adhesive. What happens when you put a piece of tape on the wall and you pull it off, and then you put it on the wall and you pull it off, and you put it on the wall and you pull it off? Eventually it loses its adhesive, right? It loses its stickiness. And that's, that's the same thing with sexuality, right? If you, if you apply it to a person, and then you pull it off, and then you apply it to another person, and you pull it off, and you apply it and you pull it off, eventually it loses its, its adhesiveness. And, and I would translate in this way, what it means is it numbs you, numbs your desire. And I know there's people sitting here perhaps thinking, or listening, thinking, well, you know, I've been in a number of sexual relationships and they've been fairly committed. And I, or, I, you know, it, I, it hasn't really damaged me. I, I don't, I'm not damaged, right? <laughs> but what you don't realize is you've been numbed, right? You've been numbed. You, don't, you, you actually don't even know the desire that you don't have any longer. You can't feel it. It's like my, my, my nerves in my hand are kind of numb because of cooking. Like I've had a lot, I'd put my hand in a lot of hot things. And so I can pick up things that are really hot that most people drop. Why? Because I don't, some of my nerve endings in my hand are just not there any longer. And now that's really cool when you're cooking, except that, <laughs> but, but, but that's what happens, is that it's like adhesive, to, like you, you lose sensitivity and numbness without even realizing. And this is especially the case with pornography. Holy cow, <laughs> guys, holy cow, <laughs> you have no idea. I'll come back to this in another time, but I just want to say that. You know, a couple weeks ago I talked about loneliness. And one of the things I said was that, you know, we as a culture, we struggle with loneliness. We struggle with the ability to feel connected, to have loving and long-term relationships. We feel isolated and alien. And we desperately long for community and love, and yet we don't know how to seem to get it. We don't know how to kind of get that. And the reality is this, is that part of the problem is because of our, our, our sort of promiscuity as a culture around these issues of sexuality. We don't realize is that our commitment apparatus, in a sense, our, our, the numbing of desire has made it very difficult for us actually to enter into the kinds of covenantal long-term relationships that we desperately need to thrive and to flourish as human beings. It's like what I said earlier. It's like, you know, pornea is it's, it's a form of false intimacy. It's a form of false intimacy. 
It, it, it offers the, the illusion of the real thing, but it's not. And what it does is it creates sinkholes. Remember what a sinkhole is? It's like an underground river that is washing away soil and dirt from the surface. And then you don't know it's there until you drive your car and you park it, and all of a sudden it just collapses beneath you. And that's how, that's how, that's how, that's what sexuality does. Listen, friends, I will come back after Easter and I will talk about God, how God repairs broken desires, numb desires, commitment. He does that. He can do that. So, so if you're here and you're thinking, oh man, he can do it. It's not easy. He can do it though. So don't lose hope. You know, I'm, I'm going to skip my second point about community, and I want to go to the last point. So the misuse of the body sexually, fundamentally, is a harm against the self. And it's a harm against community, but most importantly, it's a harm against our relationship with God. Look at what Paul says in verse 13, I think. Um, first at verse 13, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but, the, but, the Lord, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And then jumping down to verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Now, there's so much rich imagery here, but it's an incredible thought that, that your body... Your body is a tabernacle. Your body is a temple. It's a house that God dwells in. And so what you do with your body absolutely matters. It matters for your relationship with God. At the original creation, when God creates Adam, it says he formed the man from the dust of the ground, and it said it, he blew. He blew in him the breath of life. And that, that word breath is the same word for spirit. And he inspirits him that that the human being at the original creation was meant to be a dwelling place for God. And he sets them in the garden, which was the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, and God dwelt with him there, with the man and the woman. From the very beginning, the design of the universe, of creation, was that God would dwell intimately with men and women. He would dwell within us. And this is where you get all this language in Paul. He talks about union with Christ. He's like, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I I live by faith in the Son of Man who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a way that when you read Paul, sometimes it's hard to distinguish between Paul and and Christ. There's such a close union. And it's sort of like a husband and wife who have married over years and you sort of, you finish your one another sentence, you know what they're going to think immediately when a situation arises. Why? Because you're one flesh. I mean, you, your whole lives have been joined together. Yes, you're two separate people, and yet you're one. And that's the design that God has for us in His relationship with Him. Friends, sexuality and spirituality are interconnected. They're deeply interconnected. Throughout the Bible, God is always using these metaphors of marriage to illustrate his relationship with the people of Israel and also with the church. The church is called the Bride of Christ. And unfaithfulness to God. Idolatry is cast in terms of infidelity as a spouse leaving her husband to take up with another lover. And it's interesting because in the Bible, it's not simply that these metaphors are one-directional. In other words, 
that the metaphors about sexuality uh, are good ways to illustrate you know, what happens spiritually, but they run the other direction as well. And what I mean by that is this, is that what we do with our bodies sexually has profound spiritual implications for our relationship with God. That's precisely what Paul is saying, is that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, so if you do something to harm your body sexually, you're harming your relationship with God. You're harming your relationship with God. Because sexuality at the deepest core is points beyond itself to these deep longings we have for God. Deep sense of our relationship to Him. One of my experiences in life as a pastor, but also it personally, is that when people, I would say the vast majority of people who leave the church, <laughs> not all, but many in my experience, often leave because of sexuality-related things. Tim Keller tells a story about how when he was a minister, minister for early on, and uh, kids would go away from college, and then they would come back, and he would get coffee with them, and they would start sharing all these doubts and struggles they had, and they weren't really going to church. And, and Keller, <laughs> I, might, I would probably do this too, so just so you know. He, would ask, he, would, he's, he just asked the question, who are you sleeping with? And, um, and then he said they would generally hang their head and, and talk. Because what he's saying is this, and, and I, friends, I've experienced this person, the deepest crisis of faith in my life, when I thought, I don't know if I believe this anymore, it actually was preceded by a moral crisis, <laughs> an immoral sexual relationship, where I was trying to justify this, and all of a sudden, everything was on the table. I don't know if I believe any of this stuff. It's so hard to believe. See, you can't, you cannot do this. Like, you can't engage sexually in a way outside of how God has designed it without it impacting what you think about God at a more profound, higher level. You just can't. You can't do it. Because that's not how God designed it. Sexuality, physical sexuality, puts us in touch with something deeper, higher, eternal. I like this quote from, from Camus' book, The Fall, um, Camus was an existentialist atheist philosopher, and his main character in his book, Clemence, is sort of, he's a hedonist. <laughs> and he's reflecting on his, his life and, and um, his pleasures. He says, on occasion, on occasion I dance for nights on end, ever matter about people and life. At times late on those nights when dancing, the slight intoxication, my wild enthusiasm, Everyone's violent unrestraint would fill me with a tired and overwhelmed rapture. It would seem to me that at last I understood the secret of creatures of the world. But my fatigue would disappear the next day and with it its secret. I was bursting with longing to be immortal. I was too much in love with myself not to want the precious object of my love never to disappear. And here's a line that I think gets me. Because I longed for eternal life, I went to bed with harlots and drank nights on end. And in the morning, to be sure, my mouth was filled with the bitter taste of the mortal state. Because I longed for eternal life, I went to bed with harlots and drank from nights on end. But in the morning, to be sure, my mouth was filled with the bitter taste of the mortal state. The ultimate orientation of our sexuality is the heart's yearning for eternity, for immortality, to touch something deeper and farther beyond. And you can, you can throw a lifetime of sex at it, and it will never satisfy it. You can actually throw the perfect marriage at it, 
and it will never satisfy it. Because at the end of the day, you are created for something more than yourself. And God gave sexuality always to be pointing beyond, beyond simply this world to him. Let me close with, with a text of Scripture that I think um, pulls together the cosmological revolution that is the gospel. In Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth, John C. describes it this way, verses 1 through 4. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself shall be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's a picture of the new cosmos. And it's a picture of a bride and a groom coming together. And note that God says, and the dwelling place with God will be with man. The dwelling place with God will be with human. And the language here, when he says, and he will dwell with them and they will be his people. They will be his bride. They will be his spouse. And he will be their God. And he will remove all tears and all suffering and pain and the former things. See, that's the cosmos of the new creation that God is ushering in, that we now participate in as believers. Friends, Paul says here, your body is not your own. Your body was bought with a price. And that price was Jesus Christ himself and his death. When Jesus went to the cross, he gave himself to you physically, naked. But he didn't just give himself to you physically. He gave his whole life to you. I mean, that's the radicalness of the cross. It's not as if a God, you know, some body up here, inhabited by some ghost, logos thing, died and then rose from the dead. No, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, he died. He gave himself. He held nothing back. See, that's true sexuality. Jesus' death on the cross, his passion is the ultimate expression of true sexuality, of complete and total self-giving to the point of death. And that God gives himself to you, he gives himself to me, to make us one so that we can be his bride and he, we can be the dwelling place for God. Friends, that is the cosmos of the Christian life, the life that we're called to. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us to wrap our hearts and our minds around these very deep, sometimes complicated truths, but also glorious truths. Help us also to process the wounds also that we no like, likely feel and a frank conversation about sexuality. For Lord, there is not a person sitting in this room that in one shape or form or another is not a sexual sinner, that has not made mistakes. And so we pray your grace. We pray your forgiveness. 
and your resurrection power in our life to be your faithful witnesses and to experience this new reality of the new heavens and the new earth as your bride. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.